Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. The word of the Lord says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Amen. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him, through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is, your glory. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your riches of grace that you pour upon us. We thank you, God, for your word that we are heirs and sons and daughters, God, and the hope and the joy that we can have this morning gathered together, Lord. Lord, as many of us have walked in here struggling and burdened and hurting, God, that we have set before us through your word a joy and a peace and a comfort that nothing on this earth can offer us, Lord. May we reach out and grasp it today. Would your spirit work on our hearts to help us hear it, believe it, and walk in it, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness, and we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through your word this morning. Would you lead and let us hear and follow? In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it is good to be here with you. It was nice to have a week down from preaching last week. I hope that you know you got led really well uh, by Pastor Dennis. Uh, Today we are pressing forward in our series entitled, We Are Over the Book of uh, Ephesians. So I've done my best to keep it in front of us um, over and over so we don't get lost in this series. The fact that Ephesians is laid out in a very specific way Uh, There are six chapters in the book, and in those six chapters, you're going to find uh, two large themes. So the very front half of the book, chapter 1, 2, and 3, 
uh, we'll find this theme of implications of the gospel. That's what's there. One, two, and three. These are implications of the gospel on our lives. And the last three chapters will focus on really how these implications then affect our lives when they are true for us, right? So that's how the, the last half of the book is kind of put together. This means that these first chapters, they're declarative in nature for us, or it could be said that these chapters aren't going to beg you to do anything. Uh, These chapters are not going to try and twist your arm going, oh, please, will you apply this? Oh, please, will you do this? Oh, please, will will you obey in this way? Instead, it's going to say, if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, then this is what is true about you because of the gospel. Hear the difference? Oh, if you would believe this versus this is what's true about you if you follow Christ. Now, the, the reason I bring that up is it's really important, and it changes a lot of how we hear uh, this part of the book, whether it's, oh, I'm trying to be motivated, or I'm just trying to ask God, okay, what is true about me? Over the past year and a half, a reoccurring theme that I've brought up is this hyper-individualistic approach uh, to really all things, including uh, our faith and how we follow uh, Jesus. And it looks like the way that individuals all around us, including ourselves, are really, really excited about creating creating these uh, boutique, uh, niche, catered versions of anything we do so that they kind of fit us more, right? We, we, we mold things, we change things uh, in order to kind of participate in something that's maybe just a little bit more the way we want it versus maybe the way it was before. And you can hear this about faith when people say things like this. Well, faith means to me what are they doing? Well, they've altered it. They've they've boutiqued it. They've they've twisted it in order to make it what they want. Or Christianity for me is really actually about uh, that. And then they'll kind of fill in the blank normally with a truncated or modified version of faith that's maybe more suitable to them or more friendly to them or anything else uh, like that. But here is uh, the problem with that. In these texts that are declarative texts, Paul leaves zero room for anyone to twist, mold, reconfigure, or alter the gospel here. He gives you no room to play with it, no room to monkey with it. You can't say, well, it actually to me means he declares who you are in these texts, and we get to kind of decide, okay, will we believe that or will we reject that? This series is showing us that who we are is dictated not by us, but by what God says and does for us. The God in heaven made a plan to redeem us, to save us in our desperate time of need because he is good, and then he gives us an identity and places it over us. Now, I want to make sure that we're kind of um, not getting things twisted. I want to make sure that this is not some sort of manipulative thing, that this is what's declared, and if you don't believe it, you're, you're, you're crazy or something like that. This is, uh, this is not saying that if you don't believe in predestination that you're not a Christian. That's not, that's not what we mean here. Uh, And it's not saying that if you don't uh, believe or accept an election that you're a villain. That's also not what's kind of going on here. Those areas we can choose to, to kind of disagree and we can still be family. Why? Because we can still believe in redemption through Christ and Christ crucified for us. So we can, we can still kind of walk together. But there are declarative statements in this text that draw really hard lines, uh, and, and we can't change them. We can't move them no matter if we want to or not. So an example of this, Ephesians 2 says that believers are saved by grace through the gift of faith. And then he tells us why. Why? So that you may not boast. God saves you 
So you can't brag about yourself, and you can brag about Jesus instead. Now, this idea, it's a rock-solid, non-movable, uh, non-difference of opinion type of, of issue. So if a person believes or says that they are saved by anything outside of grace, maybe they say, well, you know what? I, I've done so many good works. I've gone to church for this many years. I've got some talents, and I've kind of used them for Jesus, and I've tithed for like a really long time. If anyone tries to kind of use things to jockey and say, and because I've done these things, I have proved myself to God, and because I've proved myself to God, God accepts me. I've earned His grace and mercy through how hard I've worked for Him. We would have to say kindly but emphatically, I love you, but that's not true. That, that is not accurate at all. We do not get life. We do not get grace. We do not get uh, mercy by our efforts or our production. That's just not how Christianity works. No matter how much a person tends to believe it, that's actually a whole lot more like karma rather than it is Christianity. Another hardline issue would be found in what da Pastor Dennis preached uh, last week well to us. Paul declares plainly that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles both. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus, destroys the hostility that once existed between those two groups. And the gospel not only saves individuals, but it then unites them together. So if a person believes that a certain type of person or a certain race of person cannot be saved, or if uh, they believe that Christians shouldn't associate or be in, in kind of community with a certain type of, of person, maybe because they're too evil or they're too far gone or shameful or they just kind of don't like where they've came from, we would have to say, again, kindly but emphatically, uh, you're wrong. Like, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel isn't for certain races. It's not for people with only certain pasts. It's for jacked up people, no matter anything else. The gospel breaks down every divide. Why? Because Jesus is greater than any difference that we can manufacture or try and use to divide us. The text today will also deal with another declarative statement for us, one that we often try and turn into opinion or just kind of like not pay attention to. Uh, Paul will leave no room for option here in this declaration, so the hope for us together, family, is that we would hear these words, we would accept them with open and humble hearts and ask the Holy Spirit what those implications should be over us. If this is true, then God, will you work through it in us? Now, I've started a lot of sermons lately with questions, uh, so to kind of keep you off, off guard, I won't do that this week. I'm going to uh, start a sermon uh, in a way that you probably should be taught never to start a sermon. I'm going to read someone else's sermon or part of it to start my sermon, uh, but this is from Charles Spurgeon in 1873, so this is a part of a sermon about 150 years old. Uh, this guy is much smarter than me, and he uh, talks with a little bit different language than we do, but he says it well, and I think it holds well to what this is about. So follow me for a moment, and, and let me again lay the groundwork. This is not trying to ask of anything of you. This is telling us things, and, and we get to kind of decide what to do with that. Spurgeon says, once more, he who really has this high estimate of Jesus will think him or think much of him, and as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk much of him. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Here's kind of the kicker statement. 
Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try and spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. We just have to like sit in the tension of those words because there's nobody here that that doesn't mess with a little bit. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation for Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. A man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or by pen or by tract is an imposter. You're either doing good or you are not good yourself. If thou knowest Christ, thou art as one that has found honey, and I will call others to taste it. Be wise in your generation and speak of him. And this is where he gets more charitable. And speak of him in fitting ways and in fitting times, not 24-7 and all the time with perfect theology, in fitting ways and at fitting times. And so in every place, proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. What this sermon excerpt is doing is the same thing that Ephesians and most of the New Testament does for believers. It begs the question, are you a Christian? And if you answer in the affirmative, as in yes, I am, then it declares, well, then you are a missionary. That is who you are. That is your identity. Now, is that all you are? Is that everything you are? Is there nothing else to you? No, it doesn't say that. You can be a mother, a writer, one of a bazillion VU loan people, a a teacher, a nurse, a million other things, while you still are a missionary. And that's possible because this reality of the gospel turning you into a missionary is not vocational in nature. It is instead embedded in a heart that's been awakened by grace. What does that mean? Lips that taste grace want other people to taste it as well. Eyes that have been opened want other eyes to be open as well. Now let's make sure we're playing fair. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute. You said specifically that this text wasn't going to try and convince me of something, but now are you trying to convince me to be a missionary? I'll double down. No, I'm not. Paul, in this text, by no means is begging you to share the gospel. Right? God isn't begging you, pretty, 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 please talk about me. He's not in that weak position. Paul is instead revealing to us that the revelation of the gospel upon someone's heart sets them on a trajectory of good works, and part of those good works is going to be to speak about your hope to other people. Remember back in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where Paul lays out the gospel, the tail end of the text says something that often gets left out. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And here's the part that we kind of disassociate from, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand and that we should walk in them. A verse says, if we are saved by grace through faith as a gift, We are saved by grace through faith as a gift, but then it ties that, ste- that statement with a declaration also. You're not only saved by grace, but you're saved to something and for something, and that's going to be good works. Right? And these good works were planned long before you ever came to faith in Christ. Just stop and try and wrap your mind around the sovereignty of God there for a minute. Before you knew you needed to be redeemed, Before you knew you needed Jesus, God not only made a plan to save you, but he also made a plan to use you in his plan of redemption. His grand plan of redemption would hit you and affect you and then cause you to speak to someone else so that maybe they would be redeemed as well. You're still wondering, well, maybe this is just your opinion. Well, let's let's just read more Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, here it is, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That it is uh, Christ, uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of all of that, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. Paul says in this text, he has a way of just not letting us escape. He says in the text, if anyone is in Christ, that's a roping in statement, are you Christian? Yes. Okay, well, then this is for you, that you're a new creation. You're not simply on a person on a project to become better or smarter or nicer. The old you is gone. Your spiritual death is now dead, uh, and something new has come to the glory of God and then for the glory of God. Then Paul says, all of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Uh, And here's where it lays it down. And then after we are reconciled, he gives us, all of us, any Christian, the ministry of reconciliation meaning God preordained for Christ to reconcile believers at the same time he preordained for believers to be a part of the work of reconciliation in the world after they're saved. God entrusts believers with the ministry of reconciling people to himself. Just, just think for a moment of like your, your greatest prize, like the thing that you love the, the most. I, I don't know what it is, if it's a car or a hobby. I, I don't know. And like how many people you would trust with the thing that you love the most, right? Like when we think about that, we'd be like, not very many people. God entrusts us with redeeming his children unto himself. Therefore, because of that, all Christians, each and every one of us who claims Christ is now an ambassador for Christ. Why? Because God's going to make his appeal through them. God's master plan of evangelism is to use each believer on earth, not just the pastors, uh, the Bible readers, the, the theologians, or the extroverts, but all of us to tell others what Jesus is like and why he's actually good. This is why with confidence I can say part of the good works of being a believer that's being referenced in Ephesians is the good works of being a missionary, an ambassador of Christ, one that tells other people what Jesus is like. So this text, it's not going to debate with us. It's not going to argue the merits of whether you should be a missionary or whether you shouldn't. It's not going to do that simply because it's going to assume that you already agree with it because it's all over the New Testament and it's all over the will of God. Instead, what it's going to do is it's going to jump into talking about the implication of the declaration that you're a missionary and what that means and how that should be used, and even try and encourage you for how to walk in that when things get hard and possibly when you're trying to be a missionary and just nothing seems to be working out. It's going to kind of address that. Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, I'll read that part again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in the generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is, verse 6. This mystery is that the is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the part that, that got Garrett to do an amen, because most of you are Gentiles. If that didn't happen, you have no salvation. 
yeah, that's, that should probably be like a corporate amen part. In these verses, we hear of the mystery that is at hand before the people. So there's, there's a mystery. We want you to think uh, maybe murder mystery, your, your favorite type of show that has a mystery, whether it's a drama on the screen or in print. Think of this large unfolding story that's happening with these seemingly complex problems and an issue that needs to be solved. Uh, and as the details are unfolding, everyone's going, how in the world is this going to work out, right? That's the, that's the mystery part. That's the problem. That's the, the de- that's the thing that needs to be solved here. Well, Paul is talking about a mystery that had been before the people, something that need to be solved for a long time. The mystery that he's talking about is salvation. More specifically, how will the gospel save a Gentile, a non-Jew? Okay, the mystery is hard for us to relate to. Um, because of our culture. Uh, but to understand a little bit about the Bible, it'll help us a little bit. The Old Testament talks about God choosing a people for himself. These people were Israel. They were Jewish people. This is what the covenants in the Old Testament talk about, and that God would be their God, and that those people, Israel, would be his people, and he would one day through a kinsman redeemer, meaning through a, an Israelite, through a Jew, he would save all the people that would be his, his children. This is the, the promise. He would fix what is broken through a specific person at a specific time. Now you fast forward to the New Testament, right? Old Testament, Israel, Jewish people have a promise of salvation through a Jewish person who's going to come. Then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he's speaking about salvation. But he's speaking about salvation to Jewish people, but then all of a sudden he's, he's telling Gentiles about it, which they're going, well, why are you wasting your time there? Like, this is, this is kind of for us. He's telling it to non-Israelites, who were people that devout Jews uh, considered basically ones that well, you don't deserve what we have. You don't deserve our covenant. You don't deserve the blessings of God. In fact, many devout Jews call Gentiles unclean dogs. Not like the dogs that you have on Instagram and pictures of, and I love my little dogs, my fur baby. No, like disgusting dogs that have rabies and are not pets and do not come in your home. That's what they called Gentiles, right? It wasn't a great situation then, but the Jews felt like Gentiles are ones that should not be associated with They shouldn't be helped out, and they most certainly didn't deserve their promises from God. So when Jesus came, and now Paul has come preaching to Gentiles and telling them that salvation is available to them too, a whole bunch of people are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It was considered scandalous for them to to hear, but it was also a ministry or a mystery because people are going, okay, literally, how is that supposed to work? Because you said you were going to save your people who are Jewish people. How are these people who are not Jewish people going to get the blessing that's promised to Jewish people? That's the mystery here. The idea left many of them just rejecting the notion altogether. Many devout Jews did not want to share what they thought of as their covenantal rights. Uh, many of them had a racial bias. They're just flat out racist and they hated anybody who was not from where they were from. And others weren't as resistant to the idea of, of Gentiles receiving salvation. But hear this they, they would say, okay, well, a Gentile can receive salvation, but they demanded that a Gentile had to convert to be Jewish in order to do so. Okay, you can be saved, but you're going to have to convert to be one of us to get it. Uh, You're going to have to uh, renounce your heritage, your your race, your family line, where you came from, the things that make you, you and your grandparents, them. You're going to have to walk away from that, and and that can't really be a part of you anymore if you want this promise that's, you know, just for Jewish people. 
In other words, salvation could only come through assimilation racially. Hear this, though. Even when a Gentile would convert, they would still be considered less than back then, though. As if they were like, well, I mean, through a loophole, you converted. I guess you can be a part, but like, we seriously don't actually want you here. Like, they're, they're an unaccepted kind of member of the household of God. And can you put yourself in the shoes of a Gentile back then? You had to act like a Jew, live like a Jew, eat like a Jew, no bacon, I love bacon, all the things that kind of come with that, and you had to sterilize anything about you in the past in order to, to kind of uh, be someone who could possibly be Christian, and then you kind of awkwardly didn't fit in even when you did all that. All the things that made you you, leave them alone, and then you still were looked at weird and looked at sideways. To understand this text in verse 1, Paul starts a a prayer for the church, uh, and then he has to kind of take a rabbit trail. So in the opening of the prayer, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of the Gentiles. And when he gets there, he's like, whoa, wait a minute. I I probably need to explain to everyone uh, why religious Jewish people uh, could find themselves in prison for preaching to Gentiles. He goes, I probably need to explain how this works and not assume uh, that everybody gets it. So he's going to do this rabbit trail of explaining kind of how that works. And he goes on to say that the mystery has been revealed to him. He calls it the mystery of Christ. The mystery that had been there for many generations, many people had had struggled with, uh, had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit Now, we have to pause and make sure that we don't get uh, weird because a lot of people say, well, things were revealed to me, and they they kind of come up with a new gospel. That's not what Paul is doing here. He hasn't invented a new gospel, a new position, or a new faith at all. He hasn't done that. He said the mystery, the confusion that stood for a long time, God saw fit to help Paul uh, understand it so he could preach through it. Right? There's no new gospel, no new plan of redemption. Just now the people of God are going to see more clearly the plan of redemption of God and how that will unfold. So what exactly was revealed? The mystery of Gentiles and salvation. Paul says God has shown by his spirit that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Uh, they're a part. This is not to say that Gentiles are fellow heirs if and when they convert to being Jewish. That's not what it says. But that Gentiles can still be Gentile and Christian at the same time. This really, really ticks some people off. Keep in mind, this would have been shocking for most religious people. Then Paul explains it even more to make sure that we don't downgrade them even if they become a, a part of the church. He says, Gentile are fellow heirs and members of the same body. They don't get some side, like, small, weak, weird body. They're a part of the exact same body, partakers in the same promise as Israelites had given to them in the Old Testament. They are in Christ through the same gospel in the same family as Jewish people. This sets the tone for things. Jews don't get a diminished prize. They don't become second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because they are fellow heirs. Gentiles could be saved because in his death, in Christ's death and his complete righteousness, the life that, that Christ lived was for Jews and Gentiles both, and the suffering that Jesus took on himself on the cross was for Jews and Gentiles both as well. The mystery of how Gentiles can be saved finds its answer in Jesus. Christ lived the life that Jews and Gentiles should have, but he also paid the debt that Jews and Gentiles should have had to pay. It's for all people. It's not for a certain group of people. It's not for a certain race. It isn't for a certain demographic. 
Paul's saying, hey, the gospel doesn't just apply to a smaller group of people anymore. It can be applied to anyone and everyone, no matter of their race and no matter of their background. The gospel is being declared here as transcultural and cross-cultural. This is a really big deal. Think about it. If only one nationality could be saved, or if a person had to be uh, converted in order to be saved, that's an extremely high bar, uh, a barrier of entry for them to come into the family of God. And not only is it a high barrier of entry, it's a super small uh, demographic of people that could ever actually be saved. So God saw fit through his spirit to reveal to them and to us here that the barrier of entry into the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your birthplace or your baggage that you bring in with you. It just has to do with your sin, but the good news is Jesus can pay for any type of person's sin. He removes the barrier, thereby opening the gates for all people to come into the family of God. Step back even further to dissect what Paul is teaching them. So often, and here's where we're going to try, because we don't, we don't do the whole Jew-Gentile thing here very much, but this still really applies to us, and this is where I'll try and, and kind of bring it contextually into our lives. So often, we are missionaries and ambassadors of ourselves and not Christ. Right? We teach people passively and sometimes actively by the what we do and how we relate to them. Uh, we, we teach them, okay, when, when you come in and you act more like us and, and you be more like us, and when you convert to being people like we are, then we'll accept you into our kingdom and our tribe. The aim is converting people to be more like us, to lose themselves, forget where they came from, and then when they do so, they will earn their way into our lives. This is what Jews were doing back then, demanding others to be just like them. And if they refused, Jewish people would reject them, dismiss them, just not give them the time of the day. Paul states emphatically, that is not mission and that is not the gospel. Here's where we got to start thinking. Think of your job, your neighborhood, your hobbies. We don't demand people become like us in order to receive Christ's mercy. That's not the gospel. And we don't act like people have to act just like us to get the grace that we have. When we do that, we're trying to make people more like us than we are like Jesus. And if we're just super honest, that's not really a great destination for them. We're peddling a false, uh, small, weak, honestly, like racist gospel when we do that. And it's also a gospel of works. When you do the work of becoming like me, then you'll get certain benefits. And Paul is teaching us through this word that, that we, we should not make people fit in and we should not gather only by race or affinity. The beauty and the mystery of the gospel is that God takes sinners of any type, uh, of any background, from any place, from every tribe, tongue, and nation is the way the Bible talks about it. And he brings them into the family of God and he goes, look what I did. Those people do not belong together. And yet they are. In verses 7 through 13 that Garrett read to you, Paul gives a pretty weighty declaration on the front side of it. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Think of the wording, of this gospel. What is he pointing out? There's a lot of competing gospels. There's a lot of competing messages floating around, but he's saying there's only one true gospel the one that, Paul, that God had given Paul long ago. Only one gospel that Paul preaches and only one gospel that we should preach, and that's the one that states Jews and Gentiles alike both have access to God. 
The gospel does not demand ethnic singularity to receive it, and it does not demand that everyone come from the same background and do the same stuff and have the same story in order to receive it. Paul says, uh, to me, even though I'm the very least of the saints or believers, grace was given to preach. Think of what he's doing. If I'm the least, then, then he's, he's kind of saying, well, like, and the ones that are better than me, they should, if I'm called to preach, then, then everyone else should probably be called to do it as well. Called to preach to Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light or make known to everyone the plan of the gospel. When we say things like we are missionaries, we can get super confused at times, right? We've got people who've literally been on missions trips. You're like, you mean that? Maybe one of the easiest ways to understand what a missionary really is is found in this text, or at least maybe it's a really accessible way for us to understand it. Being a missionary isn't a job or a duty. Is being a person through rhythms of your life who shares with the people around you the unsearchable riches of Jesus found in the gospel. That's what a missionary is. Missionaries, because of that, don't have to be theologians. They don't have to be well-versed in, in discourse or apologetics. and it, They just need to be people that think that Jesus is crazy good and trust him enough to tell other people about it. That, that's what a missionary is in our context. Can that send you overseas? Absolutely. Will it in most of our cases? Probably not. They have to think Jesus is good, tell others about it, and really just only be able to communicate a super basic level of gospel. What would that entail? Okay, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and luckily enough, God sent that Savior in Jesus for anyone who would believe. That's it. That's it. We get so caught up in worrying about this, and, and this is what I've heard. And I'll tell you this because I want to make sure it's, it's not castle building for myself. It, it's a fear in my own heart. But I've definitely heard it from a ton of you as well. I'm afraid that people will ask me a question and I won't know the right answer. That's why I have a hard time being a missionary. When that really wells up in our heart, what we're doing is we're forgetting that the gospel really isn't complex. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's not difficult. And Jesus made this really clear through the gospels, like, I made it so children could get it. And we can prove that. Many of our about five-year-olds can tell us the gospel without a problem. Right? And part of that, like, kudos to you because you guys are doing great jobs with them downstairs, but we have parents also who are teaching the gospel, and we have kids that are young that can tell us that, that sinners need Jesus, and Jesus went to the cross for sinners, and we believe in him for that. If they can do it, and yet somehow we get tripped up where we can't tell people that we see every single day about Jesus because we're afraid that they may ask a question that we don't know the answer to. Which again may show that we're more worried about people accepting us than them accepting Jesus. That one hits me too. See, Paul frees us from this. He just asks this question, do you think Jesus is good? Do you trust in him for the problem of your sin? Did he save you by grace, meaning you didn't have to work for it? Yeah. Okay, cool. Just tell other people a little bit about that. Just, just go tell them about that. Like in theological terms, no, actually your own voice would be much better. 
Tell them in your own voice. And, and then get this, and you don't even have to worry about their Jew or Gentile because he can save anyone. Does this, could it apply to them? It could apply to anyone. Oh, okay, well, I can tell them. He, he makes it pretty easy. Tell them a, a, a simple version of the gospel. Tell them that you think Jesus is good and pray that the Holy Spirit would show up. That, that's kind of what missionary life looks like for us. The last couple of verses share an amazing reality of the gospel with all believers. God's plan of the gospel and redeeming sinners has been realized in Christ. God's plan isn't realized in people becoming a certain nationality or becoming a certain type of person. No, the beauty of the gospel is that we have access to God so that we can boldly and with confidence come before God, not based on what we've done or what we've converted ourselves into, but based upon what Christ has done on our behalf. If anything, really the gospel is an anti-conversion message. You don't convert yourself. He converts you, and then he kind of changes your heart afterwards. Can you imagine being a Gentile back then, though? There's this faith, and it sounds really good, but it's for people that aren't from where you're from. They've got stories that you don't really know about, and your grandpa didn't tell you them, and you don't know the language, and you don't know what's going on. And they've told you, though, that you could maybe have a part, and so you kind of come before it sheepishly, but maybe you feel like a foreigner to grace when you come. Like, man, I don't know if I really have the right to pray because I, like, I don't have the right background. I don't, I don't know all this stuff. Maybe I don't have the right to be accepted by God like others here. Maybe that's how you would feel and hear me. Some of you, I, I would highly suspect some of you feel that way here now. Like you don't belong. Like you can't get the same love or the same mercy or you're like you're just too many rough edges to get what other people have. Paul's saying to them, no certain type of person gets more grace than another. No certain type of person gets more love or more access to God than another. All who have been saved, no matter their past or their heritage or their baggage, get an even playing field and an even membership into the family of God which means that you don't have to worry if you don't know all the language and you don't have all the history, but you can still come in boldness and draw near to God. Why? Because you're just as much a family member as anyone else. That's the beauty of the gospel and the mystery revealed. How will any type of sinner come to faith? In Jesus. Through what he did, through believing in them, he brings us in. Paul opens the text and he says, I'm a prisoner And then he closed saying, and I'm suffering. And in between, he tells us to be missionaries. Thanks, Paul. But in this, he says, don't worry or give up, though. And can I tell you, if he's in prison and suffering and he can tell you don't, don't give up, like he has the right to actually say it. But he's showing us that the gospel is worth fighting for and contending for. His message is deeper, though, because we get really, really down. Whether you being a missionary is saving someone or lands your tail in jail, don't give up. Don't forget that we're all ministers of the same gospel. We're all hype guys for Jesus, no matter whether it seems like it's working or not. This is the implication or declaration that we, mesh, that we mentioned before. Believers are missionaries. This is their new DNA metaphorically in Christ. But hear me, in this text, what Paul is doing is some cleanup work to make sure we remember what we are missionaries of. It's troubling to look around the climate in the West right now. 
the church has been slammed and possibly rightly. I don't know that this is all us, but we all have some of these barriers. The church has been slammed because the church is way more worried, largely. This is our MO in our country right now, with being way more worried about converting people to be Republicans than converting them to be Christians. Oh, as soon as you do this, I'll associate. More worried about converting people to a political or moral worldview, no matter which side it falls on. The world looks at us and goes, that's way more important than your Jesus is to you. The church is being slammed for being more worried about making people fall into line on issues that we think is important and boycotting them if they don't than telling about Jesus with no strings attached. Here's what Paul says. You are a missionary if you're in Jesus. But he wants to tell us a person does not have to accept all of your stances to hear about your Savior. Think about it. That would make no sense in the gospel anyway. You don't get cleaned up to come in. You just get told about Jesus. All cleanup happens later. See, our Savior does the heart transformation, but yet in our like, toxically angry culture, like, I'm not going to talk to them, I'm not going to associate, they don't like what I do. All of these things happen to break us apart when Jesus just goes, just tell anybody, Jew or Gentile, if they're a sinner, just go tell them about me. Though the issue may present itself differently to us than it did back then, I think it's still wildly relevant to us. If we're going to follow Jesus and love people, We've got to love them not just if they're like us. We need to love them by telling them about Christ. We don't love them only if they'll change the way we want them to. We love them by telling them about the one that can change them, regardless of anything else, regardless of their politics. Hear me, because this is the one that so many of us are scared of, regardless of their view on sexuality, regardless of their view on gender, regardless of their ethnicity, they don't have to change to get us to tell them about Jesus. This is what Paul's saying, and he, he faced the same thing back then. It just looked a tiny bit different. He's calling us, tell everyone about me. And probably repent where you have made people outsiders. In case you're wondering, man, I'm not trying to turn emergent by declaring that sin doesn't matter. That's not at all what's going on here. That we should just ignore behaviors, uh, even if people give confessions of faith. That's not it either. I'm just saying what landed Paul in jail. Jesus can save anyone, anywhere, at any time. That's it. Don't force people to be like you in order to share the good news with them. And be emboldened. If we truly believe that God could save any type of person, then we don't have to be afraid that we're telling the wrong type of person about Jesus. Because anyone can be saved. This, I don't know where this lands on your heart, but many Christians are so afraid of backlash from the world, of being that Christian, that there are entire groups of people that we won't talk to. Just sit in that. Jesus went and talked to the tax collector, the prostitute. He was hanging around people so much that he got called a, a drunk and a glutton. Why? Because he wouldn't fall in line and hang out with only people who looked and did things that he did. But we in our toxic culture are so afraid 
that maybe we'll only evangelize to people that already kind of think what we do. How will they get saved if we do that? Paul from prison says, and he kind of gets to say this, don't let fear be an excuse. Like, who are you to, he's the guy in prison. Like, he, he gets to say that. And don't ever write off anyone that they can't be saved. Good long pause. Terrific. That's a lie. Man, I hope this text uh, hits home. What Paul would tell us is, hey, Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to save literally anyone. Think, think about if we actually believe that, though. No person too far gone. No person the wrong type of person. There's no type of person that could just never believe. Jesus can take anyone with a resume of sin and make them alive. We're missionaries of that Jesus, saved by that Jesus, and then kind of put on mission for that Jesus. I hope as we close this down and take communion, that hopefully that we be reminded of that powerful gospel that doesn't demand other people to kind of fit into a certain mold in order for it to work. The hope is that we would be woken by the Holy Spirit and our hearts would be zealous to share this Jesus. Can we just try and like cast a vision for a second? What if redemption's hill? What if we believed those words were true? And what if we looked up at the people around us and thought, my God could actually save you? Because don't we catalog them the other way? There's no way you're getting saved. Too far gone. You scare me. You'll probably say something bad about me on Facebook if I tell you about Jesus. What if we actually believed it and began praying for people and began actually telling them about our Jesus just in simple words, not dropping the name of Jesus awkwardly, right? Jesus, what? Said so you want to go to coffee? Just in basic words, has grace hit you? Yes? Okay, just tell people a little about that. And I don't know how. You know a really good way? Tell them about how you've had to repent and how Jesus has changed you. Because if there's one thing that all of this tolerance movement has done that's good, is if God has changed you and you tell that in your story, and someone goes, well, I don't like that. Too bad. 
That's what our culture does. It gets to be my story. But seriously, what if we believed it? What if we began actually talking to people? What, what if we didn't just randomly invite people to church every once in a while? What if we told people about our Jesus and believed he would do something? One of the things that I, that I hope that we would understand is more people will get saved out there than probably in here if we believe that was true. Through your conversations, through your life, through your neighborhood, through your neighbors, through your job, just telling people. Will you get rejected some? Yeah. Yep. Will you look dumb some? Yep. Could some people get saved? Yep. The hope is that we would recapture a little bit of that. 1 Corinthians 11. 23 through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Man, you guys can come back up. I'll just tell you, as we come and we take, and anyone can come and take at the table when we uh, sing these last songs. Man, I, I don't ever, in a live process, and possibly have to ask for forgiveness. If your heart is dead set against being a missionary ever, Understand that conflicts a little bit with the table. Are you following me? If, if Jesus saved you to make you about his redemption, and you go, oh, I'm so glad, but no. That would probably be something that we should work through. I would never say that to make you not take, but that probably needs to be wrestled with if mission is something that we're just never going to be a part of. The bread is there so that even when you fall on your face, even when you fall short, even when you are weak, you know, oh, God still loved me and he's still done so much for me. I pray that we kind of hear that as you come and we take today. And genuinely, I pray we've had it at different seasons that God would wake us up to care well for the people around us. Oh, what could be done? You'd be surprised. Oh, we got to have another baptism service. That's the email I want. That's going to take us understanding what being missionaries actually looks like. Will you stand and pray with me? Oh, God, will you... Uh, we clean up whatever mess I have made and draw us to you. Holy Spirit, would you give us hearts that are captured by the possibility of the people around us knowing you? For the spots that our hearts are hard and distant, draw us close again. Father, we confess at times we're distracted by a million other things and we don't tell other people about you just because other things are more important to us at times. Will you draw us near? Hear our repentance that we have loved other things better and draw us close to you. I pray that we receive your mercy and grace this morning, but that we also receive your mission. Not angrily, not bitterly, but with excitement. 
We have family members, mothers and fathers and neighbors and co-workers that still need you. Give us the courage, God, and Holy Spirit, come behind with the Spirit and work. We pray that you would draw them to you. Lord, help us to see clearly areas where we have been unfair to those around us, where we have cataloged or categorized people as savable and not, or demanded things of people before we will give them our time and attention. I pray that you'll help us to see that more clearly. The gospel would just land on that for us. That we would love well in the way that you have loved us openly. We pray that in your name. Amen.